I, uh, I wonder if any of you, like me, have ever had one of those moments, and when I say I wonder, I mean I'm pretty sure that almost all of you, if not all of you, have had this, where you've had one of those moments where you look back on it, and you kind of sit there and you go, you look at what you did, or you look at what you said, and you're just like, who in the world was that? Because that is not who I typically am. That is not what I typically act like, or those are not words that would typically come out of my mouth. I was thinking about this over the course of the past week in uh, first service. Sarah didn't know what I was about to, what story I was about to tell. And as soon as I gave the very beginning of this, if you were looking over there, you would have seen her start to laugh because she immediately knew what was coming. But I was thinking about this throughout the course of the week, and I was reminded of when I was early on in ministry and we moved to Fort Collins, Colorado. We were in like any kind of church league sports uh, you could be in. We had co-ed volleyball. We had uh, co-ed kickball, which that one might have been through the community, not through the church. Um, but we had co-ed volleyball, co-ed kickball. We had uh, men's flag football. We had co-ed basketball, and we had men's only basketball. We had, I think I'm missing one, softball. Like any kind of league that we could think of, we got involved in that. And I, uh, let's see how to put this nicely so that I don't look quite as bad to all of you. I have a little bit of a competitive streak in me, especially in my younger years. I did not, I still don't like to lose, but I did not like to lose, which is a really bad combination when you have this really deep competitive streak and you're not that good at a lot of things. But, but I still had it, I, 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 you know, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that I had four brothers growing up and we loved to compete in things, even though three of them were enough older than me that I never had a chance of being as good as they were. But in this church league basketball league, we signed up one year and they threw a surprise on us right as we went into the beginning of the season. And the surprise was, now that you've paid all your dues, now that you've put your team together, and now that you've shown up for the first game, you're not going to have referees for this league for the season. So I'm getting there and immediately, I'm, I'm already upset. I'm like, I paid full price for this league and you're not even gonna provide us refs? You're gonna expect us to call our own fouls? Like, yes. We are mostly Christian men, but we came here to win. And then it got even better when they, that was followed up with the comment of, it's not really about winning anyway. That's not that big of a deal. And I'm saying, like, then why in the world am I playing in the first place? Like, I came out here to win. If I lose, I'll get over it. But I don't play the game of basketball so that I can just walk away from it and not know what the score was when, I was all, when it's all said and done. I'm that dad that's sitting there at the children's sporting events, and even if the score's not on the back in my head, not so that I can tell my child later, hey, you guys lost, you need to play better, but just because I want to know, like, who won the game. So here we are. We go through the league, and it's this whole call your own fouls, which you can probably guess how well that went when you have a bunch of guys out there, some of them as competitive as I am, but with more talent, but some of them are, who are competitive as I am, and the, the, you know, the yelling matches that would start. Well, we finally get to the playoffs, and in the playoffs, they provide us with referees. After going an entire season with no ref, nobody to tell us what's right or wrong, calling our own fouls, calling our own travels and our own double dribbles, all these things, we have a ref who's going to step in and think that he's going to be able to tell us what's right and wrong in the game of basketball. Now, just remember the backdrop here. This is, this is my first stop in ministry. We're in Fort Collins, Colorado. I'm the youth pastor at the Church of God in town. I'm playing with a bunch of guys who are also from that same Church of God in town. 
and we get to the playoffs, and that, which, because everybody got to the playoffs, not because we were that good, but we get to the playoffs, and I get my fourth foul of the game, which, if you don't know a lot about basketball, you only get five fouls, and then you're done. So I get there, and I get my fourth foul of the game, and I begrudgingly take myself out of the game. We didn't have a coach to pull us or anything like that, but I, I'd come out, and I sit for a little while. I'm, I'm heated, because I'm sitting there like, that was the most ridiculous call in the first place. They never should have called those first four fouls. I played a clean game. What's going on out here? And then something, it wasn't me, I promise you, just took control of my mouth. Because as the referee starts to run by the bench, I look back and I'm like, I don't even remember what was said. I'm not sure it was actually my voice. It was. But I don't, I'm not even sure this was my voice. But the ref runs by and I just, I mumble something under my breath intentionally so that this ref can hear. So that he can hear the youth pastor at the church say something. It wasn't a curse word or anything like that. But it was definitely degrading to this ref as he runs by. And here I am, a youth pastor who has a Bible degree, who has a youth ministry degree, who's supposed to be leading young men and women, and I get ejected from a church league basketball game. And my wife, who is sitting on the other side of the court, is looking over there, and I just, I, I couldn't even look, like, I, I can only imagine the, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, will he not just shut up? I don't know what took control of me in this moment. I was so upset, and I look back, and I'm like, that... That is not one of the proudest moments of my life. Now, over the course of the 12 years since then, I think I've gotten a little bit more controlled. Although there, there were a couple moments, Roy, where I'll admit, when I'm out there and I'm coaching the, uh, the little girl's soccer team, and I'm like, come on, that was a dirty play. Like, you know, and I'm like, no, no, these kids are seven. This is okay. It is all right. <laughs> so it still wells up in me a little bit. But I look back, and I don't know. I know that walking into that, I had not prepared myself in the proper way to handle what was thrown at me. Now, I don't remember if it was a bad call, if it was a good call. I mean, it was called against me, so I'm sure it was a bad call. But looking back, I don't know what the other people on the court thought about that call. If they were like, no, Justin, you're an idiot. That was a good call. Just shut your mouth so you don't spoil the game for us. All I remember is I'm not proud of the moment that I got kicked out of a church league basketball game because I walked into it unprepared. I want us to look this morning at a story where Jesus could have very easily allowed someone or something else to make decisions for him if he hadn't walked in prepared when it all started. And if you have your Bibles with you and you want to open them up and, and read with us, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 4 in the first verse. Matthew 4 verse 1. And we're going to work our way through this experience that Jesus had after he had just had this highlight moment of baptism. For anyone in here who's been baptized, you know what that feels like when you come out of that water and you hear the celebration of people around you and you, you have that sense of, all right, I'm ready to do something. I'm ready to, I, I am on fire for Jesus. I'm ready to make sure that everybody knows. I mean, that's the whole point of me getting baptized in the first place, was so that everybody knows that I am on fire for Jesus. Well, obviously Jesus wouldn't have been sitting there thinking, I am on fire for myself. But Jesus has just been baptized. We looked at that story last week. We see this moment where the Father, 
you know, he speaks down and he says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And we see the Holy Spirit present at this baptism. And then where we think that the next logical stop would be that Jesus is going to go into the city and he's going to start preaching these amazing messages and he's going to start healing people and he's going to do these awesome things. Jesus instead takes a very different course for the next 40 days. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, we read that then Jesus was led by the Spirit. Remember, going back to the past couple weeks, that Jesus is not just a costume worn by God, and sometimes he's Jesus, and sometimes he's the Holy Spirit, but God is three in one. This is one more piece of evidence. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted, and, and we can insert in here, based on our last couple weeks, his completely human body became hungry. He was very, very hungry. And at this moment of hunger, in this moment of exhaustion, in verse 3, it says, During that time, the devil came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, not because you are the Son of God, but if you are the Son of God, Tell these stones to become loaves of bread. How many times have we been tempted by, have you been tempted by, have I been tempted by the instant gratification that is laid out in front of us? You know, it's the, I need this eventually, and this isn't the way that I'm supposed to go about getting it, but man, this is going to be so much easier than actually putting in the work and getting there the way that I'm supposed to get there. We hear the stories of athletes all the time that, you know, they want to get bigger and they want to get faster and they want to get stronger. And so they, they try and skip some of the steps of trying to get to those things. And they begin to take whatever performance-enhancing drug they, they choose to take and they get busted for it. And we're all sitting there and we're shaking our heads like, oh, there goes another one trying to cheat. But how many times do we have to fight the urge to take the easy way to get to the thing that it is that we want? How many times do we have to fight the urge to do something that would give us instant gratification instead of going about and doing things the right way? That's what's being put on the plate for Jesus at this moment. He hasn't eaten in 40 days. I don't know about you, but I've never gone 40 days without eating. I've gone 40 days giving up pop. And people tell me that after 40 days of giving up pop, you'll never want to drink it again. And I know they're a bunch of liars because at the end of 40 days, all I want to do is drink a Mountain Dew. And I didn't intend to rhyme that. That was actually kind of fun, though. But I, I know what that feels like. And I know at the end of 40 days, he wasn't sitting there going, you know what? I'm not really wanting anything to eat. No, it says he was very hungry. And Satan comes to him and says, just turn these into loaves of bread. If you're really God, you can do that. But Jesus told him, no. Because the scriptures say, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What did Jesus use in his response to this temptation? Scripture. If you're taking notes, write that down. Jesus used scripture to respond to the temptation that was thrown at him by the devil. And then in verse 5, it says, Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said... If you are the son of God, in other words, he's putting out another one of these prove it moments. If you are the son of God, jump off for the scriptures say. He changes his tactic a little bit and Satan begins to use scripture. He will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. 
how many times are we tempted to put God to the test? You know, I remember hearing a story that a pastor told, I don't know how many times I heard him tell it, but several times, where he tells the story of when he was trying to make a decision for his life, he was trying to, to figure out what was the right thing to do. And so as he went to bed at night, he said, God, if you're really real and you really want me to do this, take that crooked picture on the wall, and when I wake up in the morning, have it be sitting there straight. The problem was he knew that when he woke up, if it was straight, he would have immediately thought, oh, my mom must have come in at night and straightened it. So it wouldn't have worked anyway. But how many times do we go out and we say, God, if you're really there, prove yourself to me. And we put him to the test. I know I've done it. I'm like, God, you got to prove yourself again. As if all of this stuff around me isn't proof enough, you need to prove yourself again. We celebrate the story of Gideon in the book of Judges where Gideon lays out a face, and it's you know, the story where he says, if you really want me to do this, then when I wake up in the morning, have the fleece be covered in dew and everything around it be dry. And he wakes up in the morning, and sure enough, that's exactly what happens. But then he goes, well, I don't know, that wasn't quite it. So when I wake up in the morning, have the fleece be dry and everything around it be covered in dew, maybe I switch those nights, I don't remember. But you get the point of it. What he was really doing was he was saying, God, I'm looking for a way out of this. And he's putting his Lord, his God, to the test. And Jesus responds when it comes to putting the Lord our God to the test. In verse 7, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. What did he respond with? Scripture. If you're taking notes, write that down. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said, I will give it all to you if you will kneel down and worship me. How many times are we tempted to take the glory that the world has to offer to take the fame that the world has to offer, to take the influence that the world has to offer, to take the money that the world has to offer, to take the nice things that the world has to offer. And all we have to do is worship somebody or something other than God. That's all. I mean, we can't see him anyway, so is it really that big of a deal? How many times is that temptation put out there how many times is that offer put out there in front of us? I don't know how many times I've sat there, and this wasn't just when I was teens who were in the room. This isn't going to change as you get older. Sorry. But I don't know how many times I've sat there and I thought, why do I have to be different than everybody around me? Why can't I just do the things that everybody around me is doing? everybody's going to that movie. Why can't I go to that movie? Everybody's listening to that music. Why can't I listen to that music? Why can't I celebrate these things in the same way? Why can't I just glorify somebody other than God? Why do I have to be the weirdo that worships the, the being that we can't see in the first place? Maybe you've been there. Maybe you were there yesterday. Maybe you were coming here this morning and you're like, why can't I just sleep in this morning? Which you guys came to the 10.30, so you got to sleep in a little bit. Those who came to the 9 a.m., they might have really been asking that question. Why can't I? Jesus 
is given the opportunity to obtain glory, to obtain fame, to obtain influence the easy way. And you notice his response, as we read this in a second, his response to, the, to Satan is not, that's not yours to offer anyway. He never questions whether or not those kingdoms and whether or not that glory is out there for Satan to offer. Because he knows that he's here because humanity has decided to give all those things to Satan in the first place. And he's here to take those things back. But he knows what that's going to take to take those things back. Wouldn't it be so much easier just to have them given to you? And all you have to do is get down on your knees and worship the one giving them to you. But Jesus instead responds, Get out of here, Satan. For the scriptures say, You must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Again, he doesn't respond with Satan. You don't have that to offer. No, he just says, Get out of here. Because there is only one that I'm supposed to worship, and it's not you. And so I will not worship you. What does he respond with? What does he use? Scripture. If you're taking notes, write that down. And then in verse 11, it says, Then the devil went away, and angels came and took care of the incredibly exhausted human Jesus. It doesn't say all those words. But they came to take care of him because he had just done battle with an enemy who also came prepared. And as we look at how did Jesus stand up under these incredibly tempting things. Now for us, we may look at it and be like, well, that's not tempting for me to try and turn stones into bread. But we know that that's not exactly what it means for us. That's not the temptation we have. And he walks into those and you know what he doesn't use to battle this? He doesn't use anything superhuman. He doesn't just rely on his divine mind to overcome. And that's so often what we like to think of is, is he has it, you know, he, he relies on his deity, he relies on in order to fight this temptation. No, rather what he relied on was a lifetime of preparation. He relied on a lifetime of memorizing scripture so that when Satan came and used scripture against him, he didn't just sit there and go, oh, I never thought of it that way. He didn't rely on pulling out his phone and Googling real quick, how do I respond to Satan saying this? He relied on a lifetime of preparing for an enemy that was going to come after him. Now, for the past three weeks, four weeks, four weeks, sorry, yes, for the past four weeks, we've been going through a series titled Superheroes Can't Save You, and we've been looking at different superheroes and, and how they represent some bad ideas, heresies, that people have about Jesus. We looked at a, a heresy called docetism, which we compared to Superman, where it was this idea that Jesus was fully God, but he wasn't human. And we looked at what we call the Batman heresy, which was liberalism, that Jesus was fully human, but he wasn't God. And we spent the last two weeks discovering what it means for God to be three in one, that he wasn't just a God who puts on different costumes at different times. But there's another one that I want to look at this morning, and I'm wearing green up here this morning, because I want us to look at one that, that we're going to compare 
to the story of the Incredible Hulk. How many of you have ever watched any of the Incredible Hulk movies or TV shows or read the comics? Anybody? How many of you would say that the best, absolute best version of it is the 1970s TV show with Lou Ferrigno going out there painting? Absolutely. I wasn't even born in the 1970s. I was watching it on TV Land and Nick at Night. And I would still, and that made me old right there because I don't think either one of those things exist anymore. But I remember watching it and I still think that that was the best version of the Incredible Hulk that we've had out there. If you know the story of the Incredible Hulk, he was actually a man by the name of Bruce Banner who was this incredibly intelligent physicist who had a massive tragedy occur in his life. Now, again, there's multiple origin stories. We're going to go with the 1970s TV version of the origin story where Bruce Banner is in a car accident with his wife. And where he gives everything he has to try and rescue his wife from the carnage that is the vehicle that wrecks, he just cannot summon the strength to do it. He's read about people and he's heard about the stories of individuals who all of a sudden have this superhuman strength where, where they can't explain it, but they just they lift up a car or they rip off a door. And he's trying to summon all of that and he just can't do it. He's just Bruce Banner and it's just his strength that he's able to use and he loses his wife in the car accident. But being the physicist that he is, He's been studying solar gamma radiation. And as he's been studying this, he realizes that that adrenaline pump that people get actually comes from this solar gamma radiation. And so that he will never have to experience this moment again, he just, he pumps himself full of these gamma rays and nothing happens. Until he has that moment on the side of the road where his tire goes flat and he's got to change a tire. And, and maybe you've experienced one of those moments where your tire goes flat and nothing works right. And you can't get the stinking lug nuts off and the jack keeps falling over. And, and you finally take the, you know, the, the tire iron and you chuck it into the field. And then you realize you got to go get it. because I don't, Not that that's ever happened to me ever in my, I've never lost my cool like that changing a tire. Well, he gets to that point, and he's getting frustrated, and all of a sudden, this mild-mannered Bruce Banner starts to feel some of this strength, and, and you remember, if you've seen it, where this nice little guy all of a sudden starts to, he gets bigger, and, and he starts to turn green, and kind of, you know, green, and then back to white, and green, and back to white, and, and he gets bigger, and his, his shirt rips off, and his pants below the knees rip off. Thankfully, he had stretchy pants around the important parts, and, uh, and he, you know, the next thing you know, He's this big, giant, hulking green monster with incredible strength that has regenerative powers, so it's, it's almost impossible to kill him. But in the midst of this big, giant hulk of a being, you can't find Bruce Banner for anything. Because the incredibly intelligent Bruce Banner has been diminished to this being that can't really get past anything beyond Hulk smash. And that's about the extent of his vocabulary. Because when the Hulk takes over, and I know that the Marvel movies have done something with it where somehow Bruce Banner was able to put his mind into the body of the Hulk and it's, it's weird. I don't know, maybe that came from the comics, maybe it didn't. But when the Hulk takes over, Bruce Banner is gone. And that's the problem that we have with an idea about Jesus called Apollinarianism where the idea is that Jesus was a man, 
with a human body and a human soul, but he had a divine mind. His mind was God, but the rest of him was human. And that works really well to explain stories like we looked at in the desert where he's resisting temptation. It works really well to explain how he was able to do miracles. It it works really well to explain how he was able to resist the temptation not to go to the cross. It works really well to explain how he knew so much scripture and how he knew all these stories and how he could do these things. It works really well because it would explain how he wouldn't have to suffer and he wouldn't have to be emotional because God can't be those things, right? The problem with it is, is that it requires us to change scripture in order to get to that. Because what we see is Jesus who is incredibly emotional. What we see is God who is emotional. What we see is Jesus who did suffer just like you and I suffer. If you remove those things from a human being, if you remove the mind, if you remove the suffering, if you remove the temptations, if you remove the emotions, you are no longer left with a human being. And we've already looked at why Jesus had to be human. We've looked at the evidence that supports that Jesus was indeed human. And so while it would be nice, because it would let us off the hook on some things, and it would make explaining some things a lot easier, we can't make the Bible say what we want it to say. We can't change it just so it fits our narrative a little bit better. But as we look at it, we begin to realize that the real version is better anyway. That the version where Jesus actually is fully human, with a human mind, is actually better for us anyway. Because it shows us that God sent his son to save all of us. And that includes the mind. He didn't just send his son to save our spirit or our soul, that part that goes to heaven when we die. He sent his spirit He sent his son to save the entirety of our being. It shows us that that our minds are actually redeemable. If he was willing to take it on himself, then we can trust and we can believe that yes, indeed, we are redeemable and they actually can be made new. By him being willing to take on our human body and our human mind, we can look at a savior who experienced everything that we experience. And because of experiencing everything that we experienced, or experiencing everything that we do experience, we can actually trust him to help us through this thing that we call life. We can actually believe that living up to Jesus isn't just something that we just have to aspire to and then give up on. But it's something that he says, no, you can. In the midst of the most trying times in your life where you're tempted to give up, in the midst of the hardest temptation that is thrown at you, the hardest decision that you have to make, you actually can make the right one. 
you actually can resist the attacks that the enemy is throwing at you. In Psalm chapter 119, we read in verses 9 and 11. Oh, that's the wrong one. How can a young person stay pure? By obeying your word. For I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. By taking on our mind, Jesus is able to help us fight the temptations that we come across. By going through, as we read in Hebrews, by going through and fighting every temptation that is common to man, he showed us that we can indeed stand up to it. We don't like to think about it. We don't like to think about the fact that that Jesus would have actually been tempted by the women that were surrounding him and no doubt throwing themselves at him. Now, we often skip to the next step and say, well, that means he lusted after them. That can't, no. I said tempted by, not lusting after. We don't like to think that Jesus would have been tempted to maybe take a little bit off the top of the money that was coming in to support what they were doing. We don't like to think that Jesus would have been tempted to take the easy way out. But we can't rewrite what scripture says so that it fits our narrative. Jesus looks at us and he says, I came down and I moved to John in the message version. I moved into your neighborhood. And I became one of you, completely one of you. And I withstood the things that were thrown at me, not because I have a divine mind, but because I walked into the battle prepared. And you can walk into the battle prepared too. As the band comes back up this morning, we are given a weapon. And it's a weapon that so often the enemy actually knows better than we do. Because the way that we use this weapon is to when we wanna come at somebody in our life who's making a bad decision, we Google how to answer the question that they're, they're dealing with. And so we use it to hit somebody else over the head with. We use it to attack somebody else's way of life. But he tells us and he shows us that this weapon that I've left you is for you to fight off the enemy coming after you. And only when you have used it and prepared yourself to fight the battle of the enemy coming after you can you begin to help another individual fight their battle. Not by coming at them and Bible thumping all over them. showing them what he's done in your life by showing him the victories that he's given you in your life years ago Jesus rode into Jerusalem 
And as he rode into Jerusalem, there were people all around him laying out palm branches and laying out their clothes in front of him and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, the king is coming. Praise to the king. And he had two choices to make at that point. He could decide to come over here and to accept the glory that they were throwing at him and to accept the invitation that they were putting through him to become a revolutionary and to lead them to victory over the oppressors that they were so badly wanting victory from. That he could take their glory and he could elevate himself and he could look so good. I mean, we know that just, just a little while later, Peter was willing to pull out a sword and fight right alongside him. And Peter wouldn't have been the only one Jesus could have been revered or he could take the path that he knew that he was supposed to take. The one that he knew was going to get him spit at and despised and put on a fake trial and taken to a cross and murdered in the most torturous way that they could imagine at the time. One of them would get him glory for a little while. One of them would save you and me. And he had a choice to make. We like to think that because he was God, that that was an easy choice to make for him. But if you look at what scripture actually says, We see it was a choice that he struggled with and he was tempted to take the easy way out. But he chose to go the direction that he knew he needed to go. And church, he's inviting you and me to do the exact same thing. He's inviting you and I to ignore the glory that the world can give us, to ignore the fame and the influence that the world can give us and instead to choose the path that he put before us. If he'd done this, we might have read about him in the history books. Might have. Because he chose this. 2,000 years later, we are still shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory in the highest. The king has come, the king is here, and he's inviting us on that very same journey with him.